This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. It is Monday morning, September the 14th, 2020. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker, and this is the third episode of Season 2 of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7. Today, uh, we have a full hour of talking about hospices, but as you may detect in these two interviews, there might be an overarching theme that these interviews illustrate about how services are delivered in our society in the present day. Our first uh, guest is Rebecca Smith. She's returning to the show. She's the executive director of the Surrey Hospice Society down in the Lower Mainland, and she talks about the um, ongoing struggles that Surrey Hospice has faced since the beginning of COVID. Uh, that's followed by Prince George's very own Donna Flood, Executive Director of Prince George Hospice, who tells us a very different story of hospice care. Now, both Rebecca and Donna will be speaking to common issues to do with bereavement, awareness of death, and isolation in the era of COVID. But Listen as well for the differences in their stories, because there'll be a brief editorial at the end of the program addressing that. And now, Rebecca Smith. So it's been uh, five months since we last talked with uh, Rebecca Smith, uh, Executive Director of the Surrey Hospice Society. And uh, back in April, uh, we, a month into um, really the, uh, the pandemic lockdown measures, uh, things were pretty difficult um, at the hospice. Uh, first of all, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Pleasure now, to be here. Now, it's been nearly five months. Um, how has the terrain changed now that we've gone into this sort of longer term uh, pandemic response? What's, uh, what's been happening at the hospice? Um, things have changed quite a bit, actually. We have... Um, finally made inroads and our volunteers are allowed back into the residential hospice to support those who need us, which is wonderful. Um, but we've also had a changing way of service delivery. So um, what used to be about interpersonal face-to-face -face hand holding and taking care of people, whether it be um, at, their, at the end of their lives or during their grief, now is quite often, well, 98% of the time is online and virtually. So we have done a lot of pivoting. Um, we've been moving our normal services and programs onto an online format. So we're offering webinars and support groups, uh, either through Facebook Live or Zoom or a variety of things. But we are absolutely continuing on, but it is uh, in a different way. Now, 
I mean, one of the toughest things that COVID presented was this inalterable physical fact that more people were going to die alone. Um, and so for, uh, and there are two different ways of defining dying alone. There's physically being by yourself, or there's nobody who is close to you being present. Right. Um, now, does this then put your volunteers in a different kind of role now that they're allowed to go in, but family members are not, I'm assuming? No, no. Uh, family members are. Uh, the current situation, and, and keep in mind, this evolves daily as, as FHA, Fraser Health Authority, that we work with, um, reevaluate situations and, and contagion concerns. Um, my understanding at this point in time is that hospice or palliative care um, patients are allowed two essential visitors daily. And that can be family members. Okay, it can be so friends. It can be, you know, important people. Um, uh, however, and they can people... change that list daily. Yes. Yeah, it's just two people per day. And my understanding is that, that there's no in and out privileges during that visit. They can go in, they can visit, they can leave, but they can't come back the same day. Um, at the moment, my volunteers are going in when there is no one else to go. Right, and that would have been the case before COVID, I'm assuming? They were in regardless. They were there with family. They were there um, right. without family. It, 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 they were just there. Um, now they have to get a special, uh, I guess, agreement or an arrangement when they know that there's no other family members or, or friends available to visit that individual. The individual has to say, yep, yeah, I want a volunteer to be my person today, and then they can go in. Right now, and this seems to have been working okay in terms of COVID. Um, is that, uh, uh, and this, I guess, is one of the sort of, interesting questions we we've seen across all jurisdictions that people in care homes um have often been the center of covid outbreaks what do you think makes um because hospices are often people as old or older as debilitated or more so what do you think it is that's insulated hospices like yours from being um, the kind of vectors that uh, the care homes have been? I think that there's a difference in how service is rendered to people um, and to whom, uh, who is in there, quite frankly. Um, people don't get into hospice residents unless they are expected to die within three months. Um, the reality um, under the current medical climate um, is that people die within three months, usually faster. The cycle of, of hospice um, residency is usually under a month. Um, and that's just because of a change in attitude. Um, there's palliative um, oncology where there's chemotherapy is still given until like the last minute. You cannot be in treatment when you're in hospice. That's not what hospice residence is about. Um, 
So if there is a different dynamic as to the service delivery and what services are rendered in hospice than there is in um, an ongoing uh, care facility. Uh, also, because of the skill set and the, and the different practices in hospice, it's usually a different staff that's there and they're really um, far less mobile and interchangeable than in other places. A lot of the care homes were having the outbreaks because they, um, particularly in Ontario, their, um, their staffing is part-time, they move from one care home to another, there's all sorts of um, issues with contagion and, and containment when you have people going from one place to another. So um, the people that work in the, the residents, to my knowledge, seem to be fairly stable and working in one place only. Um, that contains the, con the contagion issues as well. But I'll, like I said, it's usually people that are about to die that are in hospice. And when uh, the shutdown happened, they weren't letting anybody in, not even the one or two family members a day. So there was nothing happening in terms of the contagious possibility. Right. Now, um, are you finding that um, family members are less likely to travel and things like that in order to see people? Um, how much... How much is, even though visiting is now possible, how much has it declined even without there being some kind of limit or prohibition? Well, the travel has been a major issue, um, especially given that when you get there, you can most often not get in um, until recently when they allowed the, the visitors in. Um, that's a huge issue. But the other part of it has been that people are concerned about their own health and the contagions and their susceptibility. So they are staying away or staying isolated a lot until recently, which is, um, you know, with the, the lightning of restrictions um, over the last couple of months, which has seen our numbers increase, um, particularly since the end of August. Um, People just weren't weren't expecting to get in anywhere, and there weren't any services for people to travel and to go in and see their their family. So um, there is a lot of of reduced travel. We've actually gone to a virtual situation too, where we've provided tablet computers for the people in hospice, so that they can zoom with family members and and other visitors, and they can have FaceTime and that sort of thing. Even with our volunteers, they do FaceTime. And um, is, uh, I mean, I think we all struggle with this, whether we're in hospice or not. Um, I notice there's a lot of platform fatigue. People are giving up using certain platforms because there are just too many of them now. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the colloquialism zoomed out has become a thing for just hitting your video conferencing tolerance in a week. Um, how um how is that uh, how is that interacting do you find that um like how many hours do you find people in hospice are 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 spending doing that virtual connection and are they experiencing the same kind of fatigue um are you specifically talking about the patients uh, well i think both the patients and the volunteers i'd be curious about volunteers are new to it 
um, they haven't been going in until just recently when we we provided the tablets. Right. Um, and and quite frankly, we haven't had the openness until recently to um, embrace these kinds of formats that we're trying to move to. Uh, I would say from my experience, the people in the residence, um, they don't have a lot of tolerance as it is to interact online. Um, we're talking about very gravely ill people that are within weeks of death. Um, they're in hospice to have pain management um, and to ensure that their care is not seeking their, you know, home situation. So I, I really think there is fatigue on everything, but the fatigue comes from different places. Those people who are out there interacting, like I'm in Zoom meetings probably four hours a day every day. Um, it's exhausting and I want to see people face to face. I, I'm so tired of, of the virtual world. But it, if that's all I have, um, and that's the safest, safest way to do it, then I will continue to do it. And I think that that is what families are doing. Now, as executive director, you're, um, you know, before I, uh, before I started hosting the show, my main communication with you about um, the, uh, the hospice was about how I wasn't going to make it to a fundraising event. Um, you guys had a pretty robust fundraising calendar, and it was one that was very linked to the physical world. Like this is not a primarily email based fundraising thing. Um, you know, there's an element of community and awareness and all that. Um, and so I've sort of got, got two questions. How is the fundraising adapting and are you starting to hit shortfalls in terms of your expectations of, of what donors normally have contributed by this time in the year? We hit the shortfall right away. Um, we, as you said, we are very community-based and we are very event-based and every single one of our, of our fundraisers was canceled for this year. Um, we've been trying desperately to move to an online format, but I think that there's a fatigue level for that as well with people not wanting to attend virtual events anymore. They're, like you said, the Zoomed out and ask someone to come to a Zoom fundraiser is the last thing they want to do. Um, we're trying to find other ways, um, but we are we are down 30 to 50 percent of our revenue for the year. If not for the federal sub subsidy program for wages and rent, um, we would be in serious danger. So it's been the federal government's program. The province hasn't stepped in with extra block funding for hospice. No. Youch. We get a, a gaming grant annually. Um, I'm in the process of doing the application for that at the moment. But um, no, there hasn't really been anything provincially for us that I have that's come across my desk. Normally, we are funded by our gaming grant. We have um, two thrift stores, which one was closed for three months. Um, and thankfully it reopened, not 100% hours, but um, back in June, on the 16th of June. Um, my second one, I was unable to restaff until recently, and we're only open two days a week. So um, 
those two stories have been our sustaining um, source of funding. But again, those are those have been seriously compromised. So, um, so obviously, one of the things to do right now, um, I checked our uh, our podcast data, and uh, Surrey is our our third most popular city. So, um, um, make a pitch uh, <laughs> for uh, for listeners in the Lower Mainland uh, for how they can um, help make up some of that some of that shortfall. Well, that's an awesome opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a lot of ways that can support us. Everything from um, a cash donation or, you know, um, donating through our Facebook. Uh, we have Facebook donation programs. We have a website. We're on fundraiser. We're on um, a variety of different uh, formats. But we also have um, the ability to take donations through Recycle It programs. So if you're returning your empty bottles that... Um, I'll be honest, I drank a lot more wine over the summer <laughs> months than I normally would. Um, and those empty bottles are going to the return it depots and just putting Surrey Hospice Society's name on an account number on it. So those could help support us. Um, there's a variety of different ways that you can do and uh, we definitely desperately need it. The other opportunity is to, if you took this time when you were not out and about to, um, you know, go through your home and, and look to get rid of things you don't need, you can donate your unused items through to our thrift store. There are bins all over Surrey at fire halls, they're red and all those donations go to support us. Um, or tools. We have a tools-only thrift store in Cloverdale called the Toolbox. And um, if you're interested in either buying tools to work on your projects at home or getting rid of tools you no longer need, then donations or, or purchases are gladly accepted at the Toolbox in Cloverdale. Well, that is, uh, that is a whole bunch of different ways in. Uh, and uh, yeah, so just... Uh, and pivot off from the, the Surrey Hospice website for the simplest kind of donation. Uh, now, um, are you, um, how are you guys doing in terms of your volunteers? Um, have you lost volunteers? Have you got the number of volunteer hours that you need? Um, we have actually lost volunteers through our thrift stores. We have, um, a lot of our volunteers are themselves at, um, in higher risk categories, whether that be age or, or illness or having loved ones that they care for as well. Um, so we do need more people that are willing to volunteer. Um, and, and we're always, always looking for people to volunteer. However, on our palliative um, support side, we have gained, we, are we have training courses for people who want to volunteer bedside and we have had, we're just about to start our second full course of volunteers from since March. So that's pretty awesome. And, and people are obviously learning and, and remembering how important it is to be connected and to give back and to support the other people in their community. And, and it's wonderful to see people stepping up and saying, you know what, I, I need to do something. I guess that's one of the uh, effects of the, the pandemic is that um, we are thinking a little bit more about um, our mortality 
but also about our mortality being a process. Um, you know, uh, friends of mine who've had COVID um, are still, um, you know, um, well, some haven't recovered and some, um, they don't know what recovery means because there are persistent effects and um, it's unclear whether the, uh, the outbreak has happened. So in a way, it, it does make sense that we've been forced to look at an aspect of our society that we really try hard not to look at. And so I, I find that quite interesting that there's this increased interest in doing the central tough volunteer work and that it's, um, it's just in terms of people's health doing that, the fundraising volunteer work where you've taken the hit. Uh, yeah. It's amazing actually, because uh, that is, you know, I, it sounds awful, but there are silver linings to this COVID pandemic. There, it is, um, it has been the breather, I think, that a lot of people needed because life gets super busy and you're running around trying to do everything that you possibly can to keep up with the Joneses and keep up with the bills and keep up with keeping up. Um, and then all of a sudden, like in a blink of an eye, you're forced to stop and you can't do all those things. And so then you really have to real exam examine what's important and where does your value really lie? Is it a, is your value based in productivity or is your value based in interconnectivity with other humans and making a difference emotionally as well as, as physically for other people? Yeah, it is. Um... It is curious there, I mean, and I, I find it interesting how, for me, COVID also helped me to realize how different the culture of British Columbia had become because I thought about how people would have reacted when we had a different kind of civic culture. You know, 30 years ago, we would have had the most people in Guy Fox masks doing anti-mask demos and, uh, today that's uh, that's that's it's at the, the periphery so I think that there is this larger process of us discovering who we are today that um, that COVID has unleashed on us so um, how long can um, you guys go with the um, with the shortfall before um, uh, you have to cut beds or services or something we won't be cutting beds. We don't run the residence itself. That's Fraser Health. Um, right. What I have had to do is cut staff. Um, and that has resulted in a wait list for our services. So um, I do have um, registered clinical counselors that I employ to provide um, grief and bereavement services. I used to have three, I now have two. Um, I used to have uh, an event coordinator, but that does not seem to be a, a pertinent position <laughs> anymore. So I no longer have an event coordinator. Um, there's a lot more. My plate has gotten a lot busier and fuller um, by my taking on roles that um, were previously staffed out by other people and we can't afford to keep them. Um, and we aren't doing those things. So um, those things have already changed. And there has been some savings in that, I mean, we're not paying for 
the regular utilities at our office because we're not in our office. However, we have had to pay rent and um, when you pay rent on a store that's not open and zero income coming in, it does make a big difference. So um, the services have been curtailed. I have a, a quite a wait list right now and I'm, I'm saddened by that because people need help and they need it right away. Well, uh, so um, people obviously can um, head to the website, make donations to do that, also look at volunteer opportunities to try and close some of those gaps. So want to thank you very much for coming on the show, and um, we'll, uh, we'll check back in again in a bit. Alrighty, Thanks, Stuart. It's nice talking again. Yeah. Uh, that was Rebecca Smith uh, speaking about the challenges she's facing as executive director of the Surrey Hospice Society. Now we move home to Prince George because here we are on CFUR 88.7 broadcasting from the UNBC campus and uh, our show Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George. I'm your host Stuart Parker and uh, we're now going to listen to the conversation I had with Donna Flood yesterday about the very different situation for the hospice uh, services here in Prince George. All right, uh, joining me on the line uh, from not very far away, but far enough away because we are distancing, is um, Donna Flood, the uh, executive director of Prince George Hospice Society. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Now, we, um, we just finished talking with uh, Rebecca Smith from Surrey Hospice, um, who uh, is as curious as anybody to uh, hear this interview uh, and hear how challenges are different or the same up north uh, compared to uh, in the Lower Mainland. So. One of the things she flagged is that um, you guys um, uh, you guys pretty much run your hospices on your own uh, rather than in collaboration with Fraser Health. Is that, is that correct? Uh, not Fraser Health, sorry, Northern yeah. Health. Yeah, so yeah, so we do have a partnership with them um, that they do support us with some funding for the Rotary Hospice House directly. So they provide 70% of the funding. However, operationally, it's fully under our control. So that means that uh, the nurses work for the Prince George Hospice Society. We provide all of the all of, all, all of the regular things you would do if you were operating a hospice house. Um, in some of the places in the Lower Mainland, what they do with the hospice societies, you know, provide the building and the volunteers and the health authorities actually do the operations of it. So here, I, I like the fact that we get to have some control. So um, now we've been in uh, the time of COVID for about six months. Um, how did COVID initially affect you guys and what's changed in the months since? Well, like with anything, I think what um, adversity creates opportunity. So um, we had to sort of really sort of adjust our visiting. The, the whole thing about hospice care is that we care for our guests, 
but we also care for all of their friends and family. So we really had to limit the amount of friends and family that can come in and visit. They're no longer using our space. Um, before COVID, you would come into hospice house and there would be people in our kitchen and our lounges and our family room. People were all over the building um, supporting the people that they cared for. Now we have to limit that. Um, but what we've done um, so that families can still be together is we have a tent in the back in our backyard and this tent provides space for families to be together if they want to so that they can still be together and then covidly safe visit their loved ones so really we've brought the families back together so uh this uh and this seems like such a simple physical thing like i was hearing about you know what you can do with a tablet or whatever are we talking about like um uh the sort just like a, a big tent that you'd put up at a fair or something it's it's a big party tent it's a big tent you would do if you were going to a wedding so it uh it would normally house about 120 people we have it covid safe at 30. so we've also had people utilize the tent for celebrations of life one of the things we found really impacted by covid was people's inability to to get together and sort of pause and reflect and celebrate the, the passing of someone. So this tent has allowed people to get together. We've partnered up with um, Brent Productions and Russell's um, AV that they can provide streaming for families so they can bring families in from all over the world um, and be together in this tent to celebrate. We found this to be a tremendous asset to people. Now, uh, obviously, they're, they're, we're going to hit some seasonal limitations, this being Prince George and all. Um, is, there, is there a winter plan for what will stand in for the 10th? Well, that, that's again where that, that sort of uh, agility and resilience comes in. So we haven't come up with that, but we will. Um, there's uh, more than likely opportunities to look at. Um, the, the need for our grief programs has really increased over COVID due to isolation and people's, again, inability to, to pause and reflect. So um, it's, it's also sort of bringing um, people together to um, that sort of peer support for grief support, so. Now, Rebecca talked about people um, being much less able or likely to travel because of COVID. Um, have, you seen, um, have you seen a big shift in um, uh, people's willingness to uh, or ability to uh, come to Prince George if they uh, if that's not their city of residence. Um, so what we find is uh, families again are less likely to visit. Um, we do have iPads and the ability for that sort of virtual visiting with with people. Um, again, we find the the tent helpful because families can you know meet with families virtually together as well. Um, so really it's um it's becoming a bit of the new normal that uh, the use of virtual platforms to connect people and uh i mean i've noticed in organizations i'm in we have platform fatigue that people now that they're having to use a couple more software platforms other ones are dropping <laughs> off we're finding there's this new expression in english of being zoomed out that you just can't take another conference call um, this has got to be more challenging in terms of like the platforms and feeling zoomed out for people who were already facing um, 
a terminal illness. Well, yeah. So what we we've been very lucky. We have over two hundred um, people volunteer for hospice. So we have a, a large um, network of people to support people. So we have been able to have volunteers become part of people's bubble as well. So people that are um, having a life-ending illness at home with a family caregiver, we're able to provide that volunteer support so that they're able to move through this illness and all of the complications involved with that support. We also have the same with our people that are grieving. We have one-on-one um, -on -one grief support and these volunteers become part of the bubble so that they're either see people through Zoom or one-to-one. -one. So um, it's again being very, very cautious but um, providing people what they need. Um, this isolation is creating um, increases in addiction and mental health illnesses. So anything we can do to provide companionship and support is what we're doing. Now, um, uh, down, in, uh, down in Surrey, I had come to know um, uh, the Surrey Hospice Society because, you know, my friend was the ED and she was constantly doing fundraising events and I was uh, bad at attending them. I... Uh, <laughs> So it was like the main conversation I used to have about hospice was why I wasn't going to bowling or something. And <laughs> I, um, so Surrey Hospice is very event-based in its fundraising and it's taken a huge hit because it's had to cancel all of its fundraisers. Have you guys faced any financial shortfalls or hurdles because of COVID? Well, uh, part of our strategic plan is sustainable funding. So because you can't necessarily reply, rely on the fundraising as, you know, global economic shift and the people's ability to support them. However, in Prince George, we are so fortunate. We have a, a large donor base that um, annually provide us with um, their donation. We've adapted um, some of our uh, fundraising events virtually. We had a an annual color walk that we, we did a virtual color walk where people went in on their own and that um, actually raised more money than when we've done it like as, a, as an event. We have our huge dream home lottery. And so that has been going unbelievable this year. We've already um, almost sold out our first 50-50 where on September 25th, we're gonna be giving somebody $150,000 and then on December 24th, Christmas Eve, we will be giving away a beautiful house and another hopefully $150,000 to someone. So that really has supported us because we do that um, electronically, people can buy. So we go right across the province and um, get fundraising. No, that's, uh, yeah, these are, these are things that adapted well. How is it that you, um, um, did you used to be event-based and then gradually move in, um, in this direction of more sort of... Uh, uh, um, I think stuff? that um, we, we've become very strategic. We know that um, 
uh, events um, raise the profile of hospice so that people go and they learn about what we do and they become. But as far as ensuring that it provides us with the revenue you need, you can't guarantee it. So we've had to, again, be very strategic in um, looking at sustainable donations, support from the health authorities, all of that sort of thing, and our dream home lottery. The other thing we have, which is a, would be great for your viewers to know about, is we have worth repeating. Um, that's a thrift store that we have. We have one in College Heights and a brand new one downtown on Third Avenue. It's called Worth Repeating Two. And everything in that store is a loony or under. So all the university students that are looking to pick up their stuff, you get to these stores and um, it's a great way to be environmentally conscious and also um, economically conscious. So it's a really good places to go. Uh, have you uh, had any uh, challenges with uh, keeping the stores uh, staffed with, um, uh, with the current COVID restrictions? Nope, uh, we're, we've been pretty lucky. Over the summer, we had quite a few um, students. We also have quite a few volunteers that support us. Our biggest challenge is everybody during this COVID has decluttered their homes. So we got to the point where we were overwhelmed, like honest to goodness, isn't it an awful place to be in? Overwhelmed with donations. Um, I had to go and find an actual warehouse and the nature of hospice, we are so blessed with um, people supporting us, but we had, we've been given a huge space at the old O'Grady school just to process the donations. We get over 250 bags or boxes per day from the community and we can only physically process a hundred. So we've put an actual stop on the donations until we can better process and get them out to to the shops. But uh, what what a horrible problem. Yes, these are have, problems eh? other people want. I know, but, um, and I think the other thrift shops we've offered to the other thrift shops, they're all in the same position as well. Oh, interesting. So there's just, um, we're, we're pushing stuff out our door faster than we're taking it in right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, perhaps everyone but my partner and me. We uh, we are we're talented clutterers, even at uh, <laughs> even at straightened times like these. Now, um, obviously, the um, the central issue for doing hospice care is to make sure that that people are not alone in their last days. Um, for um, for people who um, um, whose relatives aren't traveling, or for people whose relatives might, um, you know, be in a risk group or whatever, and are tentative about visiting, um, what are the um, um, what are the ways that um, uh, that the society is sort of filling in for that? Again, that's, uh, yeah, so, so what we do is, um, we again, we have um, volunteer visitors that will visit people. They become part of their bu bubble so that they're there and available. Our caregiver support, Coffee for the Caregiver, is a big part of what we do to support the caregivers that are caring for people at home. One of the biggest burdens of people dying is um, the family caregiver 
becomes very isolated, very much alone. They're losing the person they love and it's, it's quite a burden. So really when I, when I think about what is the full role of hospice, it's about unburdening people, whether it's families that are helping support someone that dies, whether it's someone dying or someone that's grieving. It's really going in and taking that burden off them in whatever way makes sense for them. So, uh, yeah, I could really see that in some ways, the lives of caregivers are even more dramatically changed. They're going to be yeah. the most vigilant and fearful about exposing themselves to COVID. They're going to, and so that, that is going to obviously magnify people's sense of isolation, the number of people who can come in and help them. So, yeah. um, and I think that's actually, a, it's a really useful perspective to, we're such an individualistic society but it's the the real body in a in a time like this is the family it's the whole body of yeah. the family and all of the parts that the individuals make up and so you shrink that body that's going to be uh that's going to be hard um it uh so when we're um when we're thinking about um people who are handling bereavement in these times, is there advice that for people who aren't necessarily, don't have someone in hospice, the person who's dying might be more removed, they might be in another city. Um, what kinds of, uh, of messages do you think it's important to get to people who are um, more isolated uh, while going through something like this? I think that the main thing is it's okay to feel how you feel. There is no way you're supposed to feel. Everyone is uniquely grieves in their own way. Make a list of things you may need. What I find is a lot of times people will phone and say, what can I do? And people will say, oh, I'm okay, that's fine. No, ask people for support. Even if it's, can you pick me up some milk or can you drop this off for me? You know, those sort of things um, are very helpful. Um, while you can get outside and, and get some exercise and walk um, and take time to think of your memories and share and pause. If, if it becomes overwhelming, give a call to hospice. We're there. You don't have to have had somebody in hospice. Hospice is there for the community at large. Um, we continue to provide care and grief support for children in a way that makes sense for them, whether it's face-to-face -face or through Zoom. We've been doing lots and lots of individual Zoom conversations with both children and adults. Um, but just remember that it's okay and take the time to pause and celebrate and reflect on the person so you can move on into your grief. I think, uh, especially in, in all that, um, one of the things that I, I think people don't realize is that um, because we're, we're a society that pushes death away so often and that isn't habituated to it and wants to treat it as an extraordinary event, so many people who want to help don't have the cultural equipment people a couple of generations ago would of knowing that, that uh, of, of knowing what it is that, um, that can be symbolic help or direct help. And the corollary of that is that a lot of people don't realize that their friends want to help. They just don't know what to do. That yeah. they're, that 
I think a, a lot of people feel isolated and they assume that, um, you know, really asking someone else to help is doing that person a favor as well as yourself. Absolutely. And I think that um, we, we need to pull people in and, and invite them and give them opportunity to help. One of the biggest changes though, that's been happening over probably the last five years is this not having anything when people pass. So if you, if I go to my mom and say, you know, you know, what would you like? Don't do anything. I don't want anything. Just, uh, you know, um, have nothing, you know, but it's not really for my mom. Anything no. after is for, for the people left behind. And I think that um, you're doing a disservice by saying, don't have anything for me. It doesn't give that opportunity for people to share stories or just, you know, express their condolences. That ritual has been around for as long as people have been around for a reason. And so if there's one thing I implore people, have that moment in time to stop and pause and celebrate and recognize someone's life. Um, and don't say nothing, have something, even if it's sitting in the backyard and having a hamburger and reminiscing. It's so important to have that moment in time. It, uh, I can certainly speak to that. I, I think it's one of the, uh, my grandmother did not want to be, uh, she was the most important parental figure in my life. And she said, well, and we said, well, what should we do after you die? She said, throw my ashes in the garbage. And, um, but I persuaded, I attempted to persuade my family to mark her, uh, her death. And it was, um, it was just a complete gong show. Nobody was into it. I found myself um, standing uh, in uh, seawater wearing a bathrobe, holding a, plast a red plastic tube containing my grandmother while uh, my father <laughs> stood on the beach pointing at his watch. And, uh, that, um, and I think there's a reason that I, I dream about my grandmother as much as I do, that I, uh, she continues to visit me in the present because... <laughs> Um, we're having to play out over 20 years something that we didn't take the trouble to do properly in two hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, like I say, I think it's one of the um, biggest changes that are happening, which is why I think we're seeing so much co complicated grief now and people struggling, um, you know, with, with moving forward, take the time. Um, even if you do it personally, like in your situation, even have done something traditional for yourself and marked it and marked that time and moved on, right? So. Yes. Well, on that note, I want to thank you very much for coming on the program. And um, let's make sure to make this a regular thing in future. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And uh, you know what? It was lovely to meet you. And uh, welcome, really, to Prince George. That was Donna Flood on uh, CFUR 88.7 here on the Monday morning show, Missing Peter Soski and Prince George. I'm your host, Stuart Parker, and now we will have a brief editorial.
It's time for our semi-regular editorial here on Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. Well, these are two hospices in very different shape. And this is increasingly uh, characteristic of the larger healthcare system in British Columbia, where if you move from one location to another, you can't necessarily rely on the government providing you the same supposedly universal services. And this goes back to a set of political decisions made during the 1990s. Everywhere, the world over, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, went through a period of adjustment, a restructuring of governments and their programs known as austerity. This did not necessarily mean that governments spent less on their programs, but it did mean that governments delivered uh, less in services by the end of the 1990s than at the start. This was part of a global consensus with respect to policy, a phenomenon we often call neoliberalism. Now, depending upon where you lived, your government might have been a party that was a socialist or social democratic party during the Cold War. Or you might have a government that had a conservative party during the Cold War. Although both social democrats and conservatives brought in austerity and had very similar policy goals, there are small differences. And one of the ways you can detect them is how governments contracted out some of their services. What I mean by that is that conservative governments privatized many services, and this allowed for, um, once private companies were delivering services governments had before, uh, wages could be cut, unions could be busted, and this would allow the government's friends in the private sector to make profits while at the same time the bill being submitted to the government was the same or smaller for the same services. So in provinces like Alberta, Ontario, um, that had conservative leaders during the 1990s, we see a lot of privatization in government services. Governments selling off uh, highways, hospitals, you name it. Now, something different happened in places whose, gov whose governing parties had previously been socialist parties. And in many ways, British Columbia was the laboratory for these policies. Um, policies that would come to be known by the mid-1990s as the Third Way were tested really first in BC in 1991, with the election of Mike Harcourt's NDP. Uh, the Harcourt government went through significant austerity programs. Uh, they 
cut the number of people eligible for social assistance. They cut the amount of money that was paid for social assistance. Uh, they ruled that many people who had previously been deemed disabled were able to work, etc. And those kinds of policies might have been brought in by a conservative party. But one of the differences we see with, thir uh, with the third way is that rather than contracting out government services to private companies, the services were often contracted out to charities. Now, the effect of contracting out something like child care or looking after the disabled to a charity is pretty similar to contracting it to a private corporation. Uh, it allowed, in the case of mental health workers, uh, for massive wage cuts and deunionization. It also, by handing over the delivery of certain government services to charities, this also exerted downward pressure on wages. People were much less likely to go on strike uh, or do other forms of job action if their employer was not the government, but a local charity. Especially if the government had the charity make up some of the shortfall. In this way, the government could cut its spending on a service, but tell the charity to keep maintaining the same level of service and to finance that by replacing workers with volunteers and government funding with donations. Now, of course, over time, uh, the government made itself more flexible for engaging in contracting out. And they did this by creating authorities so that instead of people up here thinking that Adrian Dix is responsible for their healthcare system, because he's the Minister of Health, we think a shadowy organization called Northern Health is responsible. And a group of Harvard Business School type administrators run organizations, authorities like Northern Health, which then make deals with local charities. We've really lucked out with our hospice charity. Um, it's more than made up for the shortfall in government funding, and it's been able to create a stable funding model. But we all know that that's not true of everything Northern Health contracts out, that there are services here that exist in Southern BC that are threadbare or barely available uh, because the contracting out hasn't worked as well. And that's why we extend our sympathies to the people of Surrey. Here, a charity is working desperately hard, but as it becomes unable to uh, meet the needs that it was providing, the health authority has no democratic accountability, and the Minister of Health is viewed as distant, someone who can't be making those local contracting decisions himself. In this way, we can tolerate a massive cut to the services enjoyed and needed by bereaved people and by dying people throughout 
uh, the central Fraser Valley and lower mainland. And we view this as just a normal thing. We end up holding people like Rebecca Smith accountable for these cuts in services when in fact these are what these are services that are technically part of a universal health care system that is supposed to take us from cradle to grave so let's remember here that while it's important to donate and why i'm encouraging you to donate to the surrey hospice society what we also have to do is make sure in the provincial election that may be coming very soon that we ask candidates if they are willing to reverse the trend of austerity through contracting out whether to private corporations or to charities this has been another broadcast of missing peter zosky in prince george on cfur 88.7 co-sponsored by los altos institute l-o-s-a-l-t-o-s dot c-a